This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Every once in a while there comes a show that I just really don't want to do um, for one reason or another. Uh, oftentimes it's because there's so much room for misunderstanding uh, and perhaps even for distrust when the topic comes to the surface. And so I, I always like in those situations to get someone who is much smarter than I am, who can uh, flesh out the conversation a little bit more fully. Uh, and so we've done that today. We're going to talk about what may be a, a sensitive topic, but to do so uh, in a irrenic way with uh, with our friend and many time returning guest, Bo Bonner. Bo, thanks for being with us. Thank you for asking. You're talking about this smarter guy. I keep waiting for him to show up. So uh, <laughs> but you're, you're going to have someone that you're going to talk about a difficult show and uh, that you can heap all sorts of blame on. I'm your guy. So let's do it. <laughs> so uh, there's always some disaster or catastrophe to, to take our attention. But the one that's out right now has a deeply human toll to it. And that's what's happening in Afghanistan as the United States has now withdrawn from the country. Um, it's created a lot of emotions and a lot of different people. It's also created a great deal of turmoil for a people who are already war weary. So we're not going to be talking at all about specific policies or specific presidents because plenty of presidents have had their hands in, in this conflict in one way or another. But what I do want to talk about is what is what's incumbent upon us. How should we really wrestle with the idea of war in and of itself as a Catholic? Because in the creed, we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So everyone around the world who bears the name of Catholic, we're all together. It's one Catholic church. As well, we say, I believe in the communion of saints. We're all connected. And we see this in, throughout the, the epistles of Paul as he says, uh, for we are members of one another. So this idea that the Catholic Church has that they call just war, just war theory, um, it was formulated first by St. Augustine uh, in, in the Christian context and then uh, refined a little bit by St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it gives us a framework through which to view a state conflict, nation against nation. And I, I want to put it in the context of the kinds of conflict that we see today. So first of all, Bo, if you could take just a moment and enumerate for us what is just war theory, what's maybe the development of it, and what are the points of it that, that the church gives us and asks us to examine as we look at the idea of conflict. Absolutely. I think one thing that's important to realize, it's like you said, in the historical context of St. Augustine, um, this is right around the time that the Church is figuring out uh, how to live uh, its call to the world, to be in the world but not of the world, at the time when it really starts to see itself be asked uh, uh, to be in seats of power. And I know that there's all sorts of narratives about like Constantine and what this means, so it, not, it's not to like act like there weren't Christians who were ambitious and wanted to get into seats of power. That, that's not what I'm trying to get at. What you see, though, is in the vacancy that starts to happen once the Roman Empire really starts to accelerate uh, in falling apart, is you really do see the Church and bishops, uh, Christianized barbarians, 
various aspects of the church being asked to serve in roles that it did not really under uh, experience at, at the birth of the church. The church, of course, is born as an underground movement, actively persecuted in places throughout the Roman Empire. And by the time you have St. Augustine uh, writing about what he wants to call the just war theory, uh, you have Christians inhabiting things that they didn't really ever imagine doing. They are emperors now. They are running things. They have the safety of people who aren't even Christian, like the entire city and commonwealth under uh, their care. And so there starts to be this question of, well, should we even do it, right? And so you have certain uh, maybe the ultra-monastic sects that say no and like go to the desert and ignore it. But for a lot of people, the idea, they, they look to things like the Old Testament exile narratives, or the fact that you know God did raise up uh, the Hebrew people to, to do certain rule. So there's these questions of how do you follow the Prince of Peace in situations where you will do, have to do something like warfare. And so Augustine, at the very seat of what the, he points out here is, Christians can be called and should be called uh, to, in it, with the power of grace to be sacrificial. Uh, but there is, of course, like a, a very natural justice where if someone attacks you, you have the right to protect yourself. And in protecting yourself, uh, you might have to use uh, up to and maybe lethal force to do so. And the, the, the Church had long pointed out, for instance, that clerics, uh, had given up that right to do so. That was like very early law in the empire. But that, of course, implied that for the lay Christian, there was something about this, right? That, you know, the father who protects himself from being killed in a mugging is actually being charitable to his wife and children, right? So he can be alive and take care of them and things like this. And so that extended once Christians um, took possessions of these seats of power. Well, what about the innocent? Right. It's one thing to give up your life, uh, but what if uh, people who are bent on evil and have, do not have charity uh, in how they act towards the innocent, um, what is a ruler supposed to do? And so the just war tradition comes out of uh, people like Augustine wrestling with a position Christianity didn't necessarily foresee itself inhabiting, but as children of the Prince of Peace, you know, we know that in the book of Revelation, God is going to uh, vindicate the righteous and the innocent, right? So it's not that violence, so to speak, is off the table to court, but there's definitively this idea about that we have a sort of uh, stance, a new wineskin stance towards all of the old aspects of the world. So while we expect rulers in, in, throughout time to protect the innocent, to use violence, as it were, uh, to, to do what's right in their realm. Uh, Augustine wants to say Christians have to think radically different about it, even when they do something like protect the innocent. And so all of the enumerations from there on, Tim, uh, they, 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 they come back to that. They come back to this idea that there, even when we have to enact the fullness of the office of ruler, and part of that means protecting the innocent, that we know that we have to do it in a new way. And what is that new way, and, and why are we going to go about doing it different? And that, I would say, is the sort of fountainhead of all other considerations of, of the tradition of Catholic just war. Even as you were talking about uh, an act of self-defense and how all of these other things sprung out of it, one of the things that the Church asks of us, even in a sense of self-defense, 
is that we use only the amount of force that's needed to repel the aggressor. And so there's uh, all the way back to even the uh, the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We tend to think about that as, well, we're going to be retributive, whereas the whole purpose of that idea is to limit escalation, to say, no, this this far and no further. And then now as we come into the Christian tradition, that is even, I think, pushed back further to say, we're not going to do retribution. We're only going to do what we need to do to defend ourselves and to defend the innocent. And I feel like sometimes we get caught up in um, in what we perceive to be justice, which is maybe a sense of a desire for sticking it to the other person. And, and we think of justice in that way rather than uh, be giving justice to the oppressed. We think of meeting out justice on the oppressor. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the idea of uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord, uh, you know, notwithstanding like 90s movies quoting, you know, hardcore Bible verses, <laughs> like and then erupting in gun violence, uh, you know, that even itself, that can sound like a really awesome tattoo. But what that's really saying is we, we as children of God know that if Christ can defeat death through the cross, that whenever possible, Vengeance belongs to the Lord, meaning we know that he will met out justice purely and with mercy and with prudence in ways that we, that we ourselves uh, would fall many times to the temptation if we decided that vengeance belongs to uh, uh, the city of man. Mm-hmm. And so even like you said, when we take these considerations in mind about the limiting principle, uh, and that it's not just about vengeance, and that even the idea of just war in, in, in Christian culture is not about vindication or, or a leveling of an accounting book. It really is the idea of, like, sometimes we have to protect the innocent to preserve peace. And that, to me, right, is, is the, the, if you fast-forward all the way to someone like Thomas Hobbes and his understanding of the social contract theory and the state and all these things like this, um, Hobbes believes that the world is sort of primordially violent and that you can only eke out peace if uh, we hand over enough violence to a strong enough um, ruler, you know, king, parliament, whatever that might be. And then they sort of like enforce a border where peace can occur in the middle of it because we use violence to keep the rest of violence out. And you see this creep in to, I would say, a lot of discussions about war, uh, policing, things like this. And it's simply inimical to what Christians believe, because we believe the world was founded in peace. God is peace himself. We believe in the tranquility of order. That will sometimes necessitate doing things like throwing people in jail, arresting them against their will, even using force to repel evil when they try to uh, go after the innocent, but it is a completely different lens in which you judge such measures. Well, and even Pope John Paul II, uh, Saint Pope John Paul II, says peace is taught by sacred scripture and the experience of men itself is more than just the absence of war. And that the Christian mm, is aware yes. that on earth, a human society is that, that is completely and always peaceful is unfortunately an utopia, and that the ideologies which present it as easily attainable only nourish vain hopes. The cause of peace, he says, will not go forward by denying the possibility and the obligation to defend it. 
And so both this idea that you're talking about of, well, you've got to have the, the strong man on the borders to ensure peace, uh, this, this falls into that same trap of saying, well, all we have to do to overcome peace is to banish war. Um, and we do that by some people would be on the, the pacifist side of things and some people would be on the, uh, on the, the violent side of things saying, well, no, we have to enforce peace with war and other people say, oh, well, no, peace is just going to happen. We should just all lay down our arms and both sides are missing it because I think they fundamentally see first and foremost peace as the absence of conflict. Absolutely. And I think that you're right to talk about peace as the tranquility of order, that it's not, um, a, a, a state that can only sort of epiphenomenally happen every so often, but that it's a deeper order among all things and actually sin is what makes us fall from that. I like how you put that, that it, it's not even that what we're talking about is a mean between two extremes. It, it almost is to say that it's, it, it's imagining what a soldier is differently. So we have plenty of saints who are soldiers but the shining examples among them, like, so, I, I mean, like, you know, St. Martin de Porres obviously is a, a soldier, but in many ways it was his willingness to give up, uh, you know, what, what, he, what he did in his, later in his life towards the poor that is sort of like the heroic virtue that we attach to. But Joan of Arc, you know, someone right. who very obviously uh, lives in our imagination because of her willingness to fight uh, for Catholic France, um, the sacrificial nature of her being a soldier is uh, categorically different, it seems to me, than, like you said, thinking about force multiplication to patrol a border, but conversely, acting like out of sort of sheer fiat, we can uh, choose that there's not war anymore and through sort of um, mere technological advances, uh, throw it to the side somehow as if we could progress uh, towards peace in that way. Well, I mean, you know, if I might geek out a little bit, uh, even... Even if you're going to look at sci-fi uh, utopias, right? This whole idea of of absolute peace because we have the technology now and we've transcended, but you still have warships in Star Trek. So you know, I mean, this is this is the thing. Um, it's not just something that we can accomplish by by towering of babbling ourselves up to a place where somehow we ascend beyond the the, the troubles that we otherwise would ordinarily face. Yeah, and to, to you know, to 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 bump that volleyball back at you of sci-fi nerdery. I think of Serenity yeah. uh, and the move. That, there's this idea, right? Of they figured out the sort of uh, intervention that will make people no longer violent, and it backfires, and of course makes them, uh, you know. So I'm not going to ruin the movie for people because it's a very old, <laughs> like like it's new. But yes, uh, sci-fi movies actually, I think, do a really good job of. Uh, artistically allowing us to to think about the ramifications of both of these uh, these ways we, we misunderstand war. So, yeah, no, I actually think that's a, a good example to bring up. We're talking today with Bo Bonner. He's the co-host of The Uncommon Good, among other things. Uh, and so let's let's begin looking at these criteria uh, put forth first by by St. Augustine and then by St. Thomas Aquinas and begin to do this little thought experiment of what does constitute a war that is fought justly? So, first of all, um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, it lays it out for us under the section of uh, self-defense. It's paragraph 2309. 
And it lists these four strict conditions for the legitimate defense by military force. Uh, One, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. What is it about this criteria that, if it's met, would make something just? So one of the things that this is interesting when the catechism breaks this out is like, so you start to think about words that show up in other places. So grave, I think, is a great way to make the connection. Because people go, well, what is this proportionality? Is this, uh, you know, is there some sort of utilitarian calculus? Is, you know, it, it, we, we, we maybe run close to trying to measure what the church has used with a long pedigree, but sort of uh, fit it into modern uh, ethical boxes where it doesn't fit. But this idea of the gravity of the matter, of course, comes up in the distinction between moral and ve- mortal and venial sin, right? And so, in a similar way, I think that might be a good anal- analogy for people uh, to, to, to look at this and imagine it. There is all sorts of ways in which going through life, um, you're going to have your passions sort of, uh, you know, you're, you, you get angry when someone cuts you off in the car and you go, rawr, or whatever, you know, appropriate uh, slang. I, I won't fill that in for you. But, <laughs> so, you know, venial sins is this idea of like, okay, well, we're fallen creatures uh, in this life, and it's sin as such that doesn't, you know, break your communion with God. But, of course, in heaven, uh, there won't be even uh, venial sin. And in this life, there's the hope that, like, you would prove uh, to not do these things. Uh, so in the, the life of nation states, of course, there's going to be things like that. Um, there's going to be uh, saber rattling. Uh, there's going to be misunderstandings. Um, I don't think that like what this is trying to say is like, you know, there's this sort of like to this point, it's fine to do that. Of course, the wrong way to think of even venial sin. Right. Uh, but there are grave matters where the damage done to that tranquility of order merits other nations to stop and ask if this aggression continues and this if it's grave enough that if it continues that the innocent will suffer and they will not have the capacity uh, to defend themselves or to you know the 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 the, the body the in, the body of the international uh, commonwealth of nations can't proceed that gravity necessitates that we do something like consider war. Uh, and if we do it in that regard, it can be justified and not simply for vengeance or for our advantage, etc. Mm-hmm. So the, the first, again, the first point of the just war theory, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2309, is that the, na- the damage inflicted by the aggressor or the nation uh, or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. The second says all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. So in a similar way that if there are other means in which you do not have to resort to uh, the strongest, this goes back to sort of prudence, right? Not only prudence, but mercy, that when you have the capacity to attain a higher end uh, without forfeiting the capacity of those higher ends. So again, if we talk about justice and mercy and how can God be merciful, does that mean he somehow, somehow ignores justice or something like this? No, God gives us the grace uh, to attain heaven because uh, us attaining heaven is a higher good than 
merely punishing us, uh, you know, to the, the nth degree for our sins. And so in a similar way, when we consider if we have to intervene on the, the, the behalf of the innocent through war, we must assure ourselves that there were not other means that were available in which we can do them. And so, you know, that's not to say uh, any means, uh, ideally, that's where they go, that, that they, the, there was an exhaustive consideration of what was actually possible uh, in this situation, right? It, it would be silly to go like, well, if this one nation would simply let the uh, aggressor nation take over their nation or something, you're like, no, no, that's not what's being said here. The idea yeah. is, is there a way other than war, and if not, then that can proceed uh, thusly. Well, and and this last one you brought up, the idea of uh, looking at mortal sin and venial sin as a way to understand the first point. I think with this second point, we can look at the principle of double effect and get a little sense of, of what this means. So with principle of double effect or with the, the question of uh, remote material cooperation with evil, mm. uh, which is a, a whole other category, which probably we need to do a whole show over. Uh, but it has right, right. <laughs> has bearing in ethics and medical ethics and everything else. Um, as we're looking at this idea of, well, this cooperation with something that's really unsavory, it's not directly contributing it to it, nor is it saying, I really want that to happen. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not doing anything other than saying, if there were any other way, I wouldn't do this. But in order to feed my family, I have to go shop at the store that supports things that I don't like, Right. Um, Absolutely. In that same way, we're looking at this saying, if if there's any other way to achieve a good end, why would we do any kind of cooperation with something that brings such evil and and indeed can be so evil in the damage that it does and inflicts upon uh, individuals and peoples and nations? Absolutely. And so, the you know, like you said, a whole other show that is a... <laughs> uh, actually uh, pertains to all sorts of topics that's been happening the last two years. I'll just yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> when you get to the idea of the remoteness of a cooperation with evil, I mean, on one hand, this this is the very stuff of why just war had to be considered, is to say the cooperation with evil that is just sort of being alive in a fallen world is sort of amplified when you are someone who has, you know, duties that have to do with protecting the innocent. Um, but that, you know, if there is a possibility to be as remote from possible, I mean, on one hand, if you can just surely do what's good, right? Like if you could just with charity or, you know, with truth or with whatever else, uh, remediate the situation. Great. But as we go down that road, we want to try to, of course, avoid, um, even remote cooperation if possible. But as you said, this is the hard part, and I think it comes up with other stuff too, but just to say it here, the trick, of course, is to say you can't intend uh, the warfare, really. What you are attempting to do is protect the innocent. And to do so, unsavory things, like you say, occur. Like, how are you going to protect the innocent from an aggressor except use force to repel the aggressor? But you can't intend the, the damage and death that that incurs, and that is where this second principle comes in, as you say. Now, this third principle is the one that perhaps is most troubling to me um, in our current situation. The third principle is there must be a serious prospect of success. And I get the sense that we, uh, we have an overconfidence, perhaps, in modern day, 
as to whether or not something that we are attempting will be successful. And as we've looked at this, this long list of, and by, by no means from any fault of those who serve our country, um, but simply just by looking at the realities of the difficulties of, of uh, inter, international politics, um, we've seen conflicts that have not gone the way that we wanted, that have not gone the way that we expected, and years later have, like we see in Afghanistan, have been completely reversed. And so it asks, it, it raises the question, was there ever really a serious prospect of success to begin with, regardless of the skill and the effort of our armed services? And and this is important too, and it bleeds into the next one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the big question about what success means. If you're not very specific about what success is when you go into the conflict, if it is in any way open-ended or unclear, you've already violated this principle. And I think, uh, at least in some enumerations of this, uh, to make it just, you have to tell the enemy what you are saying success is. So if you tell the enemy that is, uh, you know, um, an aggressor against an innocent people, if you go, look, success for us is that you no longer have the capacity to injure and kill these innocent people. Therefore, if you act in such a way that you stop their injuries and death, then the war stops. That is part and parcel of the just war tradition to, to actually proclaim that so that it is known. And that, like you said, is very alien to us. I understand that like, if you dork out and, and, and misread what we're saying, it's not like you have to telegraph you know, every move um, <laughs> that you're going to strategically do against the, the rival army. But it is important to say this is what success looks like to us. It is reasonable, and then that gets to what you're going to say. Is there any way that we can accomplish what we're saying? And, yes, to be bold uh, and and maybe, like, controversial, it is very difficult for me to imagine most of the wars that we've actually launched, not that we could have, but that we did, and say, could we have ever succeeded at what we claimed? So, for instance, you're going to recreate an entire nation in the image of the United States. And maybe that's simplifying it, but there are people who said things such as that. I was there 20 years ago. And to your point, no. I mean, like, have have we shown that success is likely in any of those sort of situations? You are absolutely right. it's, It's unjust to the soldiers we send to fight that we don't clarify and assess well this category. Absolutely. My guest today is Bo Bonner, co-host of The Uncommon Good, which is heard on Iowa Catholic Radio and Oklahoma Catholic Radio. And wherever you hear your podcasts, we're talking about just war theory. Uh, As enumerated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2309, we've talked about the first three points. And when we come back, we're going to get to the fourth point and a little bit of application. So don't go anywhere because there is much more to cover uh, join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Be praying for the people of Afghanistan. Also, pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds as we wrestle with what it means for us to be the people of God in the world of today. There's more to come right after this break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and today we're tackling, <laughs> we're going to solve this problem, right? Because that's what we do. Yeah, that's show. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the, um, the principles of just war as enumerated in the Catholic tradition, uh, first by St. Augustine, then by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and now enumerated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church around paragraph 2309 and, and following. Um, and we're looking at this specifically uh, as I am kind of wrestling with and, and meditating on and praying for uh, the people of Afghanistan. Um, as they are enduring just turmoil right now, and let's let's before we dive into this fourth point of um, of just war theory, I also want to point out that this is not so much about this moment. There is a lot going on in this moment, um, but we need to be able as Catholics to feel deeply for the people who are affected uh, by the traumas and the evils of war, because. Every war is going to be accompanied by grave, deeply troubling evils. Um, so, first and foremost, we should be uh, we should be touched to the heart for those people who are enduring that. As I've been looking at the news and and praying for the people of Afghanistan, some of the things I've been thinking about are: um, we've been at war in Afghanistan as the United States for twenty years. Before that, the people of Afghanistan. We're in the middle of a civil war, which flowed immediately after a 20-year war with Russia and communism. And so here you have a people who have been at war for nigh on 50-plus years, uh, and there's just a weariness and a trauma uh, that that accompanies that. And, and I think that we need to acknowledge that and recognize it as we wrestle with our own part in that and and invest our prayers and our attention toward those people. Absolutely. And I, I think it's important to very hard in the moral imagination, but as you said, to, to try to have that depth of being touched by the trauma of war, but not make it how, why we would be traumatized by it. I mean, that, that I think starts to fail. Like we were talking about with, points one through three is, you know, we, we start to go like, well, well, why not just acquiesce to what the United States is saying? Why not just become a, you know, a Western style democracy? Why not do all these things? But as you said, if you can imagine that, like, if you are a 60 year old man, you have been at war for 50 years, uh, straight, um, to be willing to step outside of ourselves into the, to those shoes and imagine that, um, I don't know if that's going to solve or, or, or give us insights that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise, but I think you're right. Out of charity, um, I think it's our duty to try to do that. Yeah. So to recap these points of, of the just war doctrine as enumerated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2309, the damage inflicted by the aggressor uh, on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. Two, all other means of putting an end to this grave evil must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Three, there must be serious prospect of success. And four, this is the, the last one we're talking about today, uh, the use of arms or of, of weapons must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be illuminated. 
And then there's this, this uh, parenthetical statement that we're going to dive into after this. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. Absolutely. So when we talk about, and again, I, this might sound like to the uninitiated that Bo is really worried about utilitarianism and proportionalism, <laughs> but there's a way that that flattens what is being required of us. Because the minute that you make this as, oh, this is about proportion and utility, is the minute that you can get out your calculators. And I'm just going to throw out that we've shown in the human propensity to war that time and time again, we can make our calculators, so to speak, make the, the math of war work. And so what I want to point out to say is this goes back to the deep-seated idea that if we're willing to do something because we intend the right object, we are trying to protect the innocent. One of the considerations is in protecting the innocent in this way, so warfare, do we ourselves injure, and not just, not just amount, that's the wrong word, but do we, so to speak, become the very aggression that we hope to prevent uh, for the innocent. And that sounds hard to do, right? Because you go like, no, we're the ones fighting for the good cause. Don't you see? The, we're fighting for innocent people. And you go, well, not only are humans well-known for not seeing every angle about which they might be deceiving themselves, and I don't mean that in a sort of a wide-spanning way, just saying that as a, as a moral reality, but especially if we have a good goal in mind, that can make us not, it can blind us to the ramifications of what it would take. You know, we go back to, is there a prospect of success? Well, if we're not clearly defining what that success is, and we're not clearly defining where we'll stop because success no longer becomes capable, this is where we're going to keep striving towards the goal of success even if it causes more disorder, more disruption, more suffering of the innocent, more death. And that's why point four is made as it is. It is not another calculation or utilitarian principle. It is to hammer home this idea that we are not doing war for its own sake. Unlike beauty or love or learning that are goods in their own sake, war is always and everywhere must be at most instrumental and it is a blunt instrument and is an instrument that should only be used rarely and for an overwhelming good towards the innocent. Well, and I would, I would maybe caution us all that we have a really strong propensity toward confirmation bias. So the thing that yes. we already believe, um, the side that we have already picked we can easily be persuaded by the right words by a slick marketer to tell us that, oh, well, see, we really were right this whole time without really taking a moment to discern, not just even to evaluate, but to discern uh, in a spiritual capacity whether or not a thing is truly just or whether it's a thing that just feels right to our feels. And I think, well... <laughs> To even go further in that, one of the sort of consistent lessons in the Catholic moral life is evils are actually goods that are just uh, improperly desired or improperly ordered. Uh, so if a good like love can, can actually cause evil, if it's disordered, 
so much so, so much more so when we use a blunt instrument like war, that it can easily sort of be, you know, uh, not only misused, but, you know, the sort of worst sort of thing, misused for the right reason, but in the wrong way. And this is why we, like you said, continually, this is, you know, just war is not a consideration for the beginning of war. And you go, oh, oh, check mark, check mark, check mark. And then it's like the wash cycle. And if you hit it, you have to see it all the way through. No, just war is a consideration through the entirety of the, the, the proceedings of the war. And that, I, I think, is another one that is often misunderstood is that the just warrior in the Catholic social tradition has to be very willing to stop the war at all sorts of points if it fails any of these four because it has lost its way and it is no longer doing this for the proper end and by the proper means. You know, just talking about how, how easily you can have mission drift uh, and not to use any, any modern wars that might cause uh, any controversy around here. Let's just look at the sacking of Constantinople, where we are right. going out as the, the people of God to, to render aid to Constantinople, our, our brother in Christ, and, mm-hmm. and we end up laying siege to it and taking all the stuff out of the town. If we can do that to those who we share faith with, how much more are we capable as humans of doing that to someone with whom we have painted a broad brush as enemy? Oh no, that's a great one. You get <laughs> that that ex- that has so many like lessons to learn for this example <laughs> about how one very charismatic guy can sort of convince everyone of exactly the wrong thing, and afterwards everyone's like, "Oh, it's good we sat Constantinople. Otherwise, the Turks would have uh, taken all of the stuff." And you're like. Well, they couldn't have only because you took it. any rate. Right. Yes, I think that uh, that is very illustrative of everything we've just said. So let's talk a little bit about the difficulties that modern warfare adds into the calculus of of discerning just war. Because as you read the life of the saints, whether it be St. Ignatius of Loyola or St. Francis of Assisi, who both spent time as soldiers— uh, you see that the wars that they engaged in were very often fought more on a city-state level than they were on a nation-state level. So how does the the scope of warfare now, both in its size and in uh, technological warfare, how does that affect us as we and our leaders as they go through this calculus of discerning uh, the justifications and the, the justice of a given conflict? I think all that is, very, the easiest one to start out with, but I actually think we can dive a lot deeper into very specific examples is, of course, we have weapons that can destroy an entire city with one ordinance. So once you have the power of nuclear weapons to end various cities with a payload of one, I, I think that illustrates that first point, that the sheer power is different than here is 12 Hundred men with cutlasses, you know, very different. Or, or even Just, getting to, uh, yeah, even getting to Saint Ignatius, who was hit by a cannonball uh, and yes. and survived, right? And and you know, I'll be honest, like people at the time, for instance, thought you can go read. I forget which pope it is, but you should see him talk about crossbows and how they're just instruments of the devil, and that they sort of upend everything that. Uh, Christians had tried to achieve uh, with warfare between each other. That was the crossbow. Uh, forget, you know, thermonuclear weapons uh, that can detonate miles above a city and decimate it. Yeah. 
so so on that one, very obvious. The the whole issue changes, uh, and and not even just be with with nuclear, you know, weapons, but even the sort of just tremendous destruction that can be, you know, the the, the amount of missiles that we can shoot, uh, the 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 ability to be shot from far away. And I think this gets into the phenomenology of, of war itself that I wanted to bring up. So like you said, one of the greatest accomplishments of Christendom, for anything else people want to say, is they made war hard to pull off by international treaty. You couldn't fight, like you were pointing out, during Christmas or during this time and during that. War could only be a certain amount of time. You couldn't burn people's crops, etc. And the modern world, in some ways, if you want to like, have the most pessimistic view the modern world starts when various times after the Reformation, people decide total war is fine again. Now, this also mimics, of course, the sort of brutality of uh, the discoveries of the New World and the, the chattel slavery that follows with it. But suffice it to say, when people decided that, like, oh, in order to make this war, uh, to win this war, I'm going to burn people's fields and, and salt the ground. Um, that is a sort of straight line into being able to fight a 20-year war. Now, you go, well, Bo, there used to be the 100-year war, but that's because they could only fight a few, you know, months out of the year, so it took 100 years. We fought a continuous 20-year war, and we didn't give up anything back home other than, of course, human life. The, the worst thing you could give up, human life. But, you know, we didn't have to... Uh, go to rations to fight this war. Um, like I have eaten enough food to to get diabetes in those twenty years. There was not a uh, you know less things in order to fight this. It could literally be a side note for twenty years. And then you think about the fact that at least in the past, to be a soldier, you had to look someone in the face to kill them. Yeah. And that weighed on you because that made you, I mean, it either could make you a very brutal person and there's certainly all sorts of history of that, but there was something um, perversely humane that you had to at least smell the guy that you killed. But now you can drop ordnance from thousands of feet in the air, never see those people. Like the, the, the deaths that you cause, uh, and I'm not blaming these pilots, I'm saying like we train our soldiers to do this, and that, that is a new world order of warfare. Mm-hmm. And that consideration goes to what you're saying there is that it, it, that has to weigh in on the considerations. The sheer damage that can be done, uh, the, the new calendar of warfare that uh, is basically unparalleled in human history, and then the, the psychological damage it does uh, to the soldiers who fight it precisely because in some ways uh, it's less brutal for many of them. Yeah. Now, so we're, there's so much more that I want to talk about. We're going to hit some of this in the Patreon segment, um, but I don't want to leave on that note. I want to have some, some point of application so that we're not just leaving with, oh, well, here are the four points and look how bad it is now. What's our takeaway as we who are, are faithful Catholics, maybe we have a family member in the service, maybe we ourselves are in the service, What's our takeaway for how now should we live in relation to our, our worldwide community with this question of just war that the church puts forward for us to chew on and to wrestle with as we look at the way that the world works? Well, the hope, of course, for Christians is 
to be witnesses. That's what it meant to be a martyr. That's what it means to, to pick up our cross and follow Christ. How are we going to witness to the fact that there's a different uh, way, a different world? And I know that the pacifist traditions, like most of them outside of the Catholic Church, but even within, uh, like I said, clerics who were, were t- told that they could not uh, even raise uh, any arms in self-defense even for themselves, or, um, you know, th- there's certain orders, uh, you know, like the Franciscans come to mind about their radical attachment to peace, that the witness in many ways is to point out that there is an alternative even to think about war. So it, even when there's pa- Christian pacifism within the Catholic Church, that is supposed to be a witness to a better way. It's not to be escapist. And I think this is the important point to really, you know, lay down for people. The Catholic difference in this idea is if we have either, uh, you know, voices that are witnesses um, or that we have a unified voice as witness, that we, we can say, look, we're not trying to be escapists. We're not trying to act like we have no part to play in the world. We're not ducking out of the just war, you know, the, the question of war, because we want to live a nice life and never think about it. It's the witness to say that even in fighting war, there's a way in which we put peace front and center, justice front and center, and the innocent front and center, and no longer allow, like you say, mission drift or uh, people with the loudest bullhorns um, to, to create the lens in which we see even when war uh, seems necessary. Bo, thanks for taking the time to wrestle through this with us. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, like I said, pray for the people of Afghanistan and, and pray for us uh, going forward. Our Lady Queen of Peace, pray for us. If you missed any part of my conversation with Bo Bonner or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. You can also get to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, as well, we talked about it there just a moment. Uh, we have extra segments each and every week that we give to our Patreon support community that help keep us on the air. You can find out more information and listen to those segments by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Top right-hand corner, there's a link that says Support the Show Patreon. Click that link, and there you'll find all of the archives of our Patreon segments. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips. For more information, go to verbum.com. Our reading from scripture today comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, right there in the very beginning, chapter 2. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain and raised above the hills. All nations shall stream toward it, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and set terms for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not raise sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That reading comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And all throughout Scripture, there's a couple of places in the prophets, there's certainly a place in the book of Revelation where 
we're given a picture and a glimpse of God's plan, of of the desired outcome. And and really this is for us as a as a template and as a point of direction and prayer as we pray that prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven here we're given a picture of that kingdom and we're given a picture of his will and so now it's incumbent upon us uh, to pray for and to eagerly seek that kingdom and that kingdom has not just internal, personal, spiritual implications, but it has cosmological implications. How does this affect the whole created order? That the kingdom of God is not just a way that by which we structure ourselves and our internal life, but it is a way that we interact with the world, both uh, it, with other people, but also toward the world itself. So we pray together, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our reading from church history today comes from the Second Vatican Council, from a pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world uh, known as Gaudium et Spes. And this comes from number 39. We do not know the time when earth and humanity will reach their completion, nor do we know the way in which the universe will be transformed. The world as we see it, disfigured by sin, is passing away. But we are assured that God is preparing a new dwelling place and a new earth. In this new earth, righteousness is to make its home, and happiness will satisfy, and more than satisfy, all the yearnings for peace that arise in human hearts. On that day when death is conquered, the sons of God will be raised up in Christ. What was sown as something weak and perishable will be clothed in incorruption Love and the fruits of love will remain, and the whole creation made by God for man will be set free from the frustration that enslaves it. We are warned, indeed, that a man gains nothing if he wins the whole world at the cost of himself. Yet our hope in a new earth should not weaken, but rather stimulate our concern for developing this earth. For on it, There is growing up the body of a new human family, a body even now able to provide some foreshadowing of the new age. Hence, though earthly progress is to be carefully distinguished from the growth of Christ's kingdom, yet insofar as it can help toward the better ordering of human society, it is of great importance to the kingdom of God. The blessings of human dignity, brotherly communion and freedom, all the good fruits on earth of man's cooperation with nature in the spirit of the Lord and according to his command will be found again in the world to come, but purified of all stain, resplendent and transfigured when Christ hands over to the Father an eternal and universal kingdom, a kingdom of truth and life, a kingdom of holiness and grace, a kingdom of justice love, and peace. On this earth, the kingdom is already present in sign. When the Lord comes, it will reach its completion. That reading comes from Gaudium et Spes, and here the church is enjoining us to pursue this this eschatological vision of earth. 
to have an understanding that God has plans for the earth that that go beyond its death and destruction at the end of time, right? That that yes, all things are passing away, and yes, the earth will will pass away, but it's not going to end there. Just as we will be resurrected in our bodies, we believe in the resurrection of the body, we also have this picture that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth, right? This is this cosmos that's here, uh, this created order is dealing with entropy. It's dealing with, with the effects of sin, but it will be recreated, remade, a new heaven and a new earth. And so for us, we can't just be content to look to the end of time and say, oh, well, all of this stuff is bad, and then God is going to come back, and he's going to take us away, and and uh, he's going to take us to a better place. No, no, no. This is the better place, a new heaven and a new earth. And so we have to be working toward that that vision of humanity as insofar as it's possible in this fallen world, that we, as, as Bo said, that we stand as a sign and a witness of the kingdom to come. There in Gaudium et Spes, it says, on this earth, the kingdom is already present in sign. We have to be that sign uh, to amplify, to, to make visible and to uh, to attest to the possibility of God's rule and reign, of that kingdom of God that we that we long for, that we aspire to, that we pray for. And yes, the, the, this is a challenging uh, exercise to evaluate our own uh, preconceptions, our own understanding through the lens of what the church is asking us to do. And this uh, uh, just war is among the more difficult topics to wrestle with because in, in a large part, uh, the the things that it touches are outside of the realm of our control. And yet it is such a an important framework for us to be able to view the world through. And it would be tempting to say, you know, this is out of my purview. I I don't have the emotional energy to deal with this. I'm going to go and just kind of put it on a shelf. Uh, but as as Pope Benedict said, the world will offer us comfort, um, but we're not made for comfort. We're made for greatness. the The life of Saint, you know, Saint Saint Francis of Assisi did not imagine that he was going to be a world renowned saint. Um, that everyone just about in all corners of the world would would recognize St. Francis of Assisi. He was uh, an ordinary merchant's son who listened when God called out to him, Francis, rebuild my church. My church is in ruins. See, rise and rebuild. Um, we too, if we listen to the Spirit and follow where he guides us and wrestle with these deep things that are uncomfortable to wrestle with, we too we'll find the Holy Spirit taking us to places that we never imagined in service uh, to the to the, our fellow humanity and for the greater glory of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's all the time we have for today. Make sure you catch this week's Patreon segment. Today's show is brought to you by all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. <laughs> <laughs>